another gross misunderstanding is that COVID protection is hiding our presence. If we are hiding our presence, then we're not going to be able to protect. And we, in fact, going to be conducting surveillance. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Covert operations as standard and training for tomorrow's principle. Two topics which we're going to bring together with our interview today. We're going to be speaking with Ivor Terrett, CEO for Enablement Advisors, and as I generally say, massive friend of the industry. I'm here with Sean West. Uh, Why is this such an important topic? Is the role of the protector changing that much? Is the, is the demand for covert operations booming or, 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 or am I uh, misunderstanding something? I don't think the demand is changing. I think each individual has specific requirements and it's depending on what your profile is. Are you a you know, celebrity that's regularly on the red carpet who wants to be seen with the, you know, the big door type person, six foot, seven foot plus, or are you a businessman who's looking for a more discreet, protective presence. So I don't think the requirements are changing. It depends on the profile of the individual and the profile you want to give off. You know, and I, I'm a big fan of covert protection. That's where my teams that I've worked with, that's where they tend to operate on that side of the fence. But yeah, I can see that, you know, the need for both Um depending on who you are and what you want to give off. And this second topic of training and development, I guess we're putting up on a, on a pedestal covert operations as something that maybe you can't train for online. It's, it's very hands-on. Um, but, but conversely, there's, there's a whole universe of things that perhaps tomorrow's protector can learn online. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts there? I'm also, I'm a big fan of online training and courses as well. But I get it, you know, covert protection is a very, it's a manual subject and discipline. You, you can't, you need to be out on the ground, boots on the ground to be able to teach that in all the nuances of it. However, you could, you know, it's just like reading a book. You know, there's many great books out there. I mean, going away from covert protection, Pete Jenkins, for instance, who we've had on the podcast before, he has his advanced surveillance books and things like that, which it is also a manual physical subject that you need to go out and carry out that on the ground. However, there's some good pre-course reading there in them, in them books, in them pages. And I think you could do that on an online basis as well. So you could do some pre-course training before going to do the actual physical aspects of that sort of discipline and training course. Well, that's a, that's a great point. And that, you know, saving time aspect, or perhaps getting ahead of the curve before you get down to physical business, get the paperwork out of the way. I can, I can see the appeal there. Um, and also you might, you might wonder, is this for me? And uh, before you go ahead first into an, a hands-on course, maybe read a book. Um, you know, it's, it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for sure, you know, before I went to do a course, I wanted to have at least some background knowledge. I didn't want to go there and be like a rabbit in the headlights. I wanted to have some, at least, some background knowledge so at least you you know you had some idea of what you are going into um but at the same time once you go in 
to that classroom or training environment, sometimes you've got to leave what you've read in the book there and you listen to the instructor as you take what's good. Um, maybe you leave some things that you think aren't so good. Um, and that's what experience will give you, you know, when you've read however many books you've done, however many courses, and you've spent time on the ground in many different scenarios and environments, and you'll build your own picture of what is good and what's not. But yeah, I think there's definitely a place for online training, as long as it's done in the correct, in the correct manner. You can't teach a CP course on a PowerPoint, on an online course. You know, you need to be there and physically do it get the boots on the ground well i like that you included that caveat because i know in the industry there are some uh, vocal uh, opponents of online training purely for the reason that you've just outlined uh, with regards to cp um but i would like to uh, imagine that we can all agree that there are some elements of pre-reading and um maybe you want to do some business skills maybe you want to do some accounting i don't know but we but, but hopefully we can agree that that is indeed a possibility. Well, let's hear from Ivor himself. Let's combine these topics, covert operations, but also effective training and development for the leader of tomorrow. And now let's meet one of the contributors to the Circuit magazine. Covert protection and online training. We are here with the one, the only Mr. Ivor Terrett, founder and CEO of Enablement Advisors, as well as local chapter lead for ISRM. Elijah and myself, we're going to be talking to you about this fantastic topic this new year. How are you doing, Ivor? I'm great, Pelham. Great to see you and Elijah and, and happy to be on this, uh, this exciting podcast. Ivor. Elijah, good to see you, man. Perfect. Well, lovely to have you on. Actually, I can't understand why we haven't had you on sooner. It's it's that big of a deal to start off the new year with you. I'm really pleased about this. Um, but let's dive into our topic with our three quick fire questions. Um, covert protection and online training. Why is it a topic that we should discuss? What is the problem we're trying to solve in the industry? So covert protection is really it's quite simply at, at one of the tactics we can use to reclaim the tactical advantage from the adversary. So traditionally speaking, when we do low profile or overt security, um, the bad guys can see us. And if they can see us, they can find weaknesses in our security configuration and they can circumvent that. No security is 100%. No security can stop all attacks 100% of the time. What we do with covert protection, there are two aspects to it. The one is the tactical aspect where we reclaim the tactical advantage from the adversary by surprising them because they don't know that we're there or they can't see us until they make a mistake. And the other aspect, which is mostly spoken about, is the business aspect that it's becoming, for the last, I'd say, seven years or so, it's, it's, it's quickly ramping up to be a, a sexy term and something that clients want because they don't necessarily want to feel security all around them. This is especially popular with low profile principles where security might attract attention to them, where if they don't have um, 
covert, if they don't have overt security, no one would even recognize them or know who they are. So we see an uptake in the market that makes it very marketable, very sexy and, and relatively popular. And that's the business side, which is great for me. And it's great for my company as pioneers in the private sector doing this. But what's often overlooked is the tactical advantage that it gives to the security effort in actively and effectively mitigating risk to whatever we're protecting. So it's not specific to executive protection or close protection. It can be anything that we're protecting. It can be an event, it can be a house, it can be a building, it can be an event, that doesn't matter. Uh, COVID protection is COVID protection is COVID protection. And another gross misunderstanding is that COVID protection is hiding our presence. It's absolutely not hiding our presence. Um, if we are hiding our presence, then we're not going to be able to protect. We're going to be focusing on hiding our presence and we in fact going to be conducting surveillance. And if we're conducting surveillance, we won't be in a risk-based formation to stop a threat as early as possible and as far as possible from the principal. And this is something I encounter very, very often, whether it's working on operations, um, consulting, strategic and tactical consulting, or training, both strategic and tactical, we see this misunderstanding um, in the, across the industry. What about your passion for this topic? You're obviously very passionate about it. And um, obviously you have a, a, a background, but, but where does your passion for this topic come from? That's a fantastic question. And it's going to seem counterintuitive to what we're doing now and to my social media presence and my presence speaking and presenting and appearing on, um, on, on news programs, et cetera. I actually do not like to be in the limelight when I'm working operationally. And that's where the passion came from. So it's, it's not a Jason Bourne, super ninja, Viking type thing that people might think. It's honestly, I hate being in the limelight when I'm working because what I found when we're in the limelight, first of all, um, we are seen all the time, which sometimes doesn't allow us to do our work as we should. Second, when we're in the limelight, we're often tasked with non-security roles. Please go fetch this, go pick up the kids from school, uh, go pick up the kids' bicycle from the repair shop, go out and get the principal a coffee, and all these things that, that we do. But when we're doing covert protection, we're not really involved in the principal's activities other than securing them. It's pure security. It, the service aspect is not there at all. And that's my passion. That's why I like it. The service aspect is important, of course, if you're tasked with that. I don't enjoy being tasked with that when I'm working operationally. I enjoy doing the protection aspect and dedicated to that protection aspect. And, and, and what about those uninitiated EP professionals out there, those people who have never worked on covert protection uh, operations or who have never done surveillance? Um, what would you like the completely uninitiated colleagues to better understand? That's a, a great point. So first, uh, I'll separate surveillance from protection so much so that when I started um, being more public several years ago with covert protection, it was referred to in the US and the UK as protective surveillance. Now, it's not surveillance. 
I don't call it protective surveillance. I call it COVID protection for a reason. And the reason is when people have that word surveillance, even if it's just a term that we, we're calling something that we're doing, protective surveillance, I found that the protection aspect goes out the window and all the focus is on surveillance. And what happens is that the, the practitioners often make the mistake of prioritizing the surveillance covert secret squirrel part and forget about the protection part. Whereas the protection is why we are there. So for the uninitiated and for the experienced, what I will say is when we're doing covert protection, the protection is always priority over the covert. That's why we are there, right? Not the covert at the expense of the protection. Um, many years ago, I worked with a few details and they had a directive that said, if the principal sees you, you may lose your job. And in retrospect, what I, when I consult organizations that are either fixing uh, uh, teams or details or structuring them from new covert details, that is, I often tell them, if that's the directive, you won't be able to do your job protecting that principal. If you're worried about losing your job, if the principal sees you, you cannot effectively protect them because you'll be doing surveillance on the principal and hiding away from the principal, as opposed to hiding your true purpose from the environment. So for the uninitiated, I would say, covert protection is not hiding your presence from the principal, it's hiding your purpose from the environment and staying out of the principal's space, not vision. That's the, the biggest lesson I can give to the uninitiated and the experience. All right, so I'm, I'm gonna jump in here. So, you know, one of the beautiful things um, about this podcast is that we get to have subject matter experts on. And one of the reasons I was excited to have you on, Ivor, is because the craft you know extremely well, but, you know, I think one of your gifts is that you're able to articulate it and break it down well. So, so just in these few minutes here, I think you did a wonderful job in just kind of illustrating that difference between, you know, kind of separating the surveillance from the protection, at least making sure that there's some clear definitions because protectors in the field, you're, you're right. I think we can tend to get fixated on maybe a part of the mission as opposed to the overall mission, particularly when, you know, you know, these kind of titles and these buzzwords get introduced. Uh, and, and the other thing I'll say really quick is, you know, you mentioned that, you know, maybe this shift kind of really occurred in the last several years. And, and I would agree with you because if so much of, you know, historically protective operations were of an overt nature, it was difficult for us to kind of make that, that mindset switch operationally in the field, but also it was difficult for us to figure out how to market that to our clients as business owners, uh, you know, because if we weren't forward facing, how do we convince you that we're doing our jobs? What, what are your thoughts on that? Fantastic. So there was a, a whole bunch of, of points and questions. I'll, I'll try to tackle them one at a time from the ones that I remember. And, and if not, we'll just edit it and make it sound good. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
the first thing I'll, I'll say is, and this actually circles back to what Kellen said about the uninitiated, I'll say that the, the less experience that someone has doing overt work, the easier it is often to, to perform covert work. Mm. They don't have to unlearn things. So through the years and through the people I've had the privilege to work with in the industry, and again, what Pelham said about fixing problems in the industry, I love the industry. The industry is made up of fantastic people doing fantastic work on the whole. So I don't see it as problems. I see it as progress or evolutions. Now, um, the... So that's the first thing is the, the more overt work you've done and the more overt work you've got under your belt, the more difficult it's going to be to do covert work. That's across the board, unless there's an exception. The second part is not everyone is cut out for covert work, not because they're good or not good or skilled or not skilled. We're just all good at different things. Just like equally, not everyone is cut out for overt work. It's Exact same thing. Not one's better than the other. The other mm. points I'd like to mention about marketing it to the client, covert is not an answer to everything. Neither is overt, neither is low profile. So we should only market either one of them to a client if that solves a problem and helps to mitigate risk. Otherwise, there's no point. So if we can't articulate that to a client why they need that covert um, protection bubble, if you will, then probably we don't understand if they need it or not. If we understand and we can articulate it, then that's proof in itself that it's worth marketing to them. The third thing I'd like to touch on is that the most effective security for a high profile principal, so principal who is recognizable, et cetera, et cetera, whether in their home city or on a global, it doesn't matter, but someone who's recognizable as um, a, what we'd call a quality target, not always covert's the answer. Sometimes we might want to have overt, we might want to have low profile, we might want to have covert, we might want to have a combination of all of them, right? Because sometimes we might want a co an overt presence so that there's the deterrent, so that there's the expectation if the press sees them, so that there's the expectation if shareholders see them and is paying for that service, whatever the case may be. But to reclaim the tactical advantage, if there's an elevated risk, we might want a covert presence to be out in the fields on an outside bubble looking for those threats and tactically positioning to stop any threat should it present itself before it gets to the client, right? Um, so I'm not sure if I answered all the questions you said. I, I think I did, but I might have forgotten some. No, bro, you, you, you nailed it. Um, and uh, I, I think when you talked about being able to kind of create these hybrid teams, that's one of the things in, that I think is, is most interesting about the topic because Again, it allows you to get that that tactical advantage that you spoke of, but but let me ask you this: because one of the things you did was you kind of created that distinction uh, between uh, uh, covert protection and protective surveillance. Uh, as as you see it, I guess in a perfect world for you, would you run 
two teams or could you see yourself running two teams, one that was doing counter surveillance or surveillance detection, uh, and you can make that distinction to the audience, and one that was, again, em em embedded in the environment, but also moving with the protectee covertly? I love it, Elijah. Thank you. So um, the answer is, if there's a need, so if the risk warrants it and there's the resources to do it, absolutely. Um, let me put some differentiations. The, the word covert protection or the term COVPRO, it's just a term. I don't, I don't mind, but I have no personal or emotional connection. I don't mind what's used. If people want to use protective surveillance, if they want to use Ninja Viking, it doesn't matter. <laughs> As long as the people on the ground and their management understand what's expected of them. The reason I shy away from the term protective surveillance is that I've seen, I've seen some amateur details running saying that they're doing protective surveillance, but what they're actually doing is pure surveillance. They weren't looking for any threat. They were surveilling the principle. Um, and that's why I shied away from it, to help people understand what it is. And when we take that word surveillance out and we focus on protection, that's where the focus is. It's on protection. So, so that's that part. So I don't mind what terms used. To jump onto the second part, the surveillance detection or counter surveillance, surveillance detection, in, in, again, the terms don't matter to me as long as everyone knows what they're doing. That's the first bit. Everyone knows what's expected. I don't care what terms used. In the pure sense of, of, of the thing, um, surveillance detection is a part of counter surveillance. They're not the same thing. But counter surveillance is a broader term to identify and prevent surveillance from happening on whatever we're protecting, whereas surveillance detection has a very specific role. Surveillance detection is purely to confirm or deny if we think there was hostile surveillance on whatever we're protecting at the time of our surveillance detection operation. That's it. Easy, right? Now, tactically speaking, and this is no secret, it's, it's okay that it's out there you know, on, in the world. Protection needs to be, so protection, whether it's overt, covert, low profile, confused, it doesn't matter. Protection needs to be looking away from whatever we're protecting to identify any threats and we need to stop the threat, right? Surveillance detection is usually further out and what we're looking for is we are looking for the people that might be collecting surveillance on the principle, which might not be actual threats of harm. They might just be collecting information. So our positioning is different. And that leads me to another confusion that I see in the industry often is that you cannot be protecting someone and at the same time as one person running a surveillance detection operation because quite simply, you'll be positioned in different locations for each role, right? So if when we're protecting, where we want to position is somewhere that we think the threat is going to come from and we want to stop that threat before it gets to the principal in this case when we're doing surveillance detection we want to be further away from the threat 
from the surveillance, the threat of surveillance. And we quite simply want to be collecting information on them so that afterwards we can analyze it or give it to our data analyst to look for correlation and patterns over time and distance, right? And that's another point I'll say that surveillance detection without that analytic function loses about 80% of its value, right? Surveillance detection is a pure protective intelligence role. Without that protective intelligence back end, we're losing mm -hmm. a lot of the effectivity and efficiency of what we're doing. So I, I think as we talk about this and, and, and as we drill down, we can see that there's some, some different areas of specialization and they're going to require some kind of some specific skill sets. And so, you know, you kind of reference, you know, at the beginning of discussion, you know, someone coming in who, you know, might not have as much overt protection experience would might do better in, in, in this area. But for those that do have, you know, extensive experience and now they're trying to transition, now they're trying to, to get new methods and new methodologies under, under their belt to make themselves more versatile. Or, or even someone who listens to this and goes, hey, I'm a new protector. I would love to, to get in this area. Where do I start? www.enablement.biz <laughs> for the people that speak real English. Uh, that's the first thing I'd say. So um, first, I'd say first they have to be realistic and understand what their capabilities are and what their, um, where their pool is, where their passion is. And second, um, to find good training. Um, you know, that's, that's really the, the long and short of it. Often through training and, and most training classes that, that I've delivered and I've been privileged to deliver both surveillance detection and COVID protection training uh, to probably thousands of, of protectors around the world in the last few years, in the last few years, in the last uh, 25 years or so, um, Often they come into class with a concept and an idea, but by the end of the course, they have a completely new understanding of, of what it is. And sometimes they realize this isn't for me. And often they say, I want more of this, right? Um, but tr training's definitely a, a starting point. A lot of details that my company consults to that have full-time covert teams require some form of executive protection or close protection background before joining the covert team. And then all we have to do is teach them how to hide what they're doing as opposed to teach them how to do everything, right? And that's, that's just a market reality, no matter how ideal or not ideal it is, it's a market reality and it works well. Um, so that's really where people should start. There are some, um, Ami Tobin's got a fun book on, on, um, on um, I think, COVID operations or surveillance detection or something. So it's got some fun anecdotes in there um, that's worth reading. You can't learn this from a book, but it'll, give, it'll help give them an idea. Um, I know that um, both Scott Stewart from Torchstone and Fred Burton from Ontic, both former Strat4 executives, Put out a lot of articles and commentary on surveillance detection. It's, it's worth following them and, and following them on LinkedIn and reading what they say. Both very, very uh, experienced and, and smart and wise professionals in this field. Um, I'd say 
probably global leaders. Uh, so there's, there are resources out there that you can go to to find information, uh, but ultimately good training will help the protector understand if this is their calling or if they're not cut out for it. And most of the time, it doesn't mean that they're good or bad or, or anything. It just means cut out or not cut out for it, just like anything else, right? Um, so that would be, that would be my, my off, the, um, off the hip answer, from the hip answer. And with that, I'm going to touch on a hot potato, if, if I can, if you've already got me on a, on a tangent. And I'll say that in general, I'm against the term that training is the answer, even though I make money from training. Um, on the whole, I'd say and this is looking from a very strategic approach. Before any organizer, and this is on the organizational level, not the individual level, before an organization brings in trainers to train, they should have risk-based procedures, et cetera, that the trainer can train on. In other words, it's more effective to be training according to how the organization works as opposed to doing a generic training for the organization and then have, have the participants come back and say, this is great. We're going to take one, two, and three, but we're not going to do four, five, and six because it's not suitable. Often when we see mistakes or perceived failures by protective details, the knee-jerk response is we need better training or they need better training. My observation is that training is not always the answer. First, we need to have preventative and emergency procedures, deep, robust procedures that are written and suitable per threat, per identified threat. And then we need to train on those procedures as opposed to generic training. And I see it all the time. Um, so instead of bringing the best firearms instructor to teach firearms because something happened and the best, uh, what's it called, defensive tactics trainer to teach defensive tactics, what we should be doing is writing robust procedures on how to respond to particular threats, going over that with the instructors, the subject matter experts, making sure that the defensive tactics instructor understands what the firearms instructor is teaching and vice versa, and then delivering it to the protectors as a holistic solution. Um, so that's where I was going with it. Training is not always the answer. Correct planning is the answer and training is the application of those written tactics and responses, not the other way around. And I like that because, you know, if we, if we follow that train of thought, you know, there's a lot of training that people do out of context without any, you know, given example, uh, you know, the entire organization gets Excel training, why? Um, but on the topic of training, one thing that's been very hot, especially this past year is online training. And I know that there's strong feelings in the community about this um, either way, uh, but I'd be interested in your thoughts and also its applicability maybe to covert protection. Fantastic. So first I'll, I'll preface this by saying I have no strong feelings. I'm in a very Zen time of my life and I'm happy with it. <laughs> That's the first thing. We love Zen <laughs> Ivor. <laughs> well, I'm Zen. I'm all Zen out, man. So, that's the first part. The second thing is, I'll tell you, Ellen, 
So online training, that's interesting. So I'll start off with the end and say, what, what, are, what are we trying to achieve? Right? As a vendor, I'm a vendor. Am I trying to make money and survive? Absolutely. Am I trying to find a way to survive, to keep in touch with my clientele, to keep relevant, dare I say, whilst there's no travel and you can't meet people? Absolutely. And, I, and that's what a lot of people in the industry are doing. And I can't in any way, nor do I judge them for it because I've done the same thing. That's the first part from the vendor side. From the actual skill set side, I'll say I do not believe that anything physical, I do not believe that physical tactics can be learned online without doing them physically. I've heard of actual details that have hired people to do online training for shooting and defensive tactics, another term that I really don't like, but shooting and defensive tactics, where I feel it might be good to keep your teams engaged and communicate with them and aware of what's going on and feeling part of the organization whilst they're in lockdown at home, et cetera. And I think that is a lot of value. And I think it's important, but I don't think you can actually learn from scratch how to do tactics from a video because you have to feel it and the instructor has to be with you there to give you real-time feedback, to correct you, to physically stand with you and say, hold on, look here, look there, stand there, stand here, what are you feeling? So that's my feeling. I do, however, feel that the theoretical aspects you can absolutely learn online. Um, I think that there are various ways to do it. Um, the biggest challenge with that is creating platforms that ensure um, concentration, participation, engagement by the audience. Another challenge is testing the audience's knowledge with online training, where many platforms have got multiple choice, including the platforms I use. Uh, my company's got an, a leadership academy for security leaders, which is about uh, strategy and implementing tactics, but not actual tactics, which we can, we'll touch on in a minute. But checking participant knowledge, there's so much you can do with an online platform, um, but no matter what you do, it will always be superficial. You can't really check their knowledge. And, and that's why in, in my academy that we've designed and built, and I'm very, very proud of, we actually have essays at the end of every module because that forces the participant to really dig deep to get out of their comfort zone, to put their thoughts on paper as opposed to drag and dropping or doing a multiple choice, which you can pretty much you know, guess answers until you get it right. Um, so I believe online training has its place. I do not believe its place is with actual, I'd say combat tactics or physical tactics. Um, it's rather more strategic and at the management or shift manager or team lead level. So, so Ivor, I'd like to, to weigh in and, and tell you that I, I agree. I think we're on the same page with that. Uh, but I love the fact that you led with, you know, that there is a, as a, as a business owner, as a service provider, there's a reality that says introducing these concepts will keep business on or, or may keep business owners alive, you know, during 
uh, you know, the pandemic, no matter how how people feel about it, if there's separation where you're not, <clears throat> you're not, people aren't meeting or gathering or congregating, and that was part of your book of business, business owners had to adapt somewhere. So there's a reality to that, that I don't want people to try and gloss over or, you know, make it feel like, oh, well, we're just doing online tra- training because it's the best thing. It's not necessarily the best thing, uh, as you just kind of illustrate it. You know, it's just a factor of, of doing business the same way, you know, these high-end restaurants had to start adapting DoorDash when they would never do takeout in the past. Exactly. You hit it on the head. And I think it's nothing to be ashamed of as long as the product is appropriate, right? So I, I might I might not put a video up to say to someone, this is how you do an evacuation with the client, for example, to someone who's never done the physical training. But if I've got a team who's working and I need to keep them engaged because they're bored and they're climbing the walls and they're stuck at home and they're getting paid, but they're not feeling fulfilled because they're not working, maybe we'll put up a series of videos that say, as a reminder, folks, this is how we do it. And that way, it's not teaching them the tactics from zero because one, you need to feel it through your feet. And that's a rough translation from Hebrew, right? You need to walk the walk to learn it. Um, And two, and this touches exactly to what you said and with your analogy with, with the restaurants, Elijah, we have a saying in Hebrew, which is there's the ideal and there's the realistic, right? Sometimes what's realistic isn't the ideal. We can aim for the ideal, but sometimes reality kicks us in the ass and we can't do what's, per- we can't be purists sometimes. And um, something that, something, this is a plug, something that we do at the Enablements Academy for Leadership Excellence, plug is continuing, is one of the things we have, one of the things we teach leaders, whether it's at the team lead level, so the team lead level, their job, team leads and, and mid managers, their job, is to implement security strategy through tactics, right? That's their job. Whereas the senior level, the CSO, the director, the vice president, their job is to define tactics and explain that to the mid-management so that they can implement, excuse me, to define strategy so that they can define and implement through tactics, right? One of the things we teach them is sometimes you can compromise on tactics because the environment, the budget, the culture won't allow for the ideal, but never, ever, ever compromise on the process to get there. Because that process will tell you, if you do a correct process in understanding what's probable and critical, what are your resources, what's the ideal situation to mitigate a particular threat or risk, then you can weigh up and say, okay, if we compromise on A, our price is going to be one. If we compromise on B, our price is going to be one squared or two squared. So let's choose our compromise at A. So sometimes in reality, we have to compromise. And you know this, I've worked with you enough times. Sometimes reality just says, hey, we'd love to have, you know, we'd love to have a fleet of twin, you know, helicopters and Hercules and things but we don't have, so we're gonna to have to use a, a Mercedes Vienna, just as an example, right? So what we need to do is do that process to understand we have to compromise, where can we compromise and what will the price be if we compromise? Because that's our reality. 
but never compromise on the process to understand that. Never just say, okay, principle wants uh, two vehicles, we're gonna do two vehicles. Rather say, okay, principle wants two vehicles, they're probably gonna get two vehicles, but maybe we can plug the, the gap that that creates by adding COVID protection or surveillance detection, just as an example, just drawing the conversation together, right? Um, so that's, you know, that's where I'm going with ideal versus real. Sometimes we have to compromise. It's the same with online training. Understand that you cannot learn how to rough and tumble with someone on a screen. Understand you cannot learn how to shoot. You cannot learn how to evacuate someone. You cannot learn how to physically do anything online. You can understand the theory, you can see people doing it, but unless you practice it, you're never gonna develop that muscle memory. So online training can be useful at the tactical level to try and retain that muscle memory psychologically for people that already have the base and absolutely can be used to develop leadership skills. There's no problem with that. There's no problem. And that's what we do at the academies. We develop leaders we teach those team leads how to implement um, strategy. We teach them about concepts of security from a leadership level. And at the director level, we teach them about security strategy and how to keep their, their uh, organization running smoothly as a security organization without telling them how to shoot a target or to, to you, know, you know, ninja Viking punch someone. All these ninja Vikings running around. Uh, we need to we need to watch out for them. Um, no, but 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 I love this. And you know, obviously, we've taken one of the one of the more hands-on topics of covert protection, and one of the more you know hot topics, I suppose, of online training, which big big uh, debate at the IPSB uh, in December. Elijah was on a panel on the very same on the very same topic. But 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 I like this because it's it's realistic, isn't it? it we're, we're, we're looking at what can be achieved as opposed to a blanket. No way, Jose, it's not possible. Um, personal finance, you could definitely learn that online. Absolutely. Uh, I just did a course. I did a course on virtual reality over the Christmas period. Um, am I an expert? No, but absolutely. You can you can do these things. So Ivor, what's uh, what's next for you? Uh, what should what should people look out look out for in the in the coming months? Um, hopefully, um, we'll somewhat return to normal travel and things. Um, I'd say that the next thing on my schedule that's super exciting is a broad announcement of our Academy of of um, uh, Leadership. That's something I'm very very proud of and uh, on the website I've actually put up a video where I say how proud I am I think it's one of the, the best projects I've ever worked on um, because I believe it will make a positive impact in the you know in the industry one of the things that that drew me and pushed me to it was not money making during COVID and lockdown quite simply I wasn't traveling so I had the bandwidth to do this but what I had noticed is that through consulting for some very large organizations, I noticed that often there's the same pattern of challenges that these organizations have and that these protective teams and details have. And when I sat back and I analyzed it sort of with myself and looked for those common variables, I found that quite often 
and this wasn't necessarily my clients, it was rather looking back at, at the last 30 years, not the last two years, I, I noticed that quite often senior leadership does not have a security strategy in place and they spend most of their time directing people to put out fires. And that team lead or mid-management have had no education on what it means to be a team lead or mid-management. They quite simply work their way up to that level and the experience that they have is good experience, but it's only what they've experienced it's not necessarily the complete breadth and depth of, of knowledge that's available. And that's why we put the Academy of Leadership Excellence up to give those senior leaders the opportunity to learn how to develop effective security strategy, which will limit how many fires and the size of the fires they'll be putting out day to day and will enable them to run a security department and will help the mid-management and team lead level understand all of the tools and concepts available to them, not only what they've experienced through their career. Um, so that's a huge milestone that we're going to be pushing. We've been working on it, I, I can tell you, for almost two years. It's a fantastic system. I'm happy to demo it. I'm even happier for people to sign up and, and take it. Um, for the UK folks, it is uh, people that pass the studies and are approved by Ofqual will actually get a level five diploma in corporate security leadership. So it's accredited. And for the US folks, people that hold a CPP or other ASIS uh, license actually get complete points for that license renewal under the um, uh, CPE program when Ablements Advisors is a preferred CPE provider for this training uh, through ASIS. So very cool. we're very serious about it. We've put a lot of resources into it. And I think it's, it's got potential to be a positive influence on the industry. I'll also say if there's, a, not everyone is accepted to take the classes or the courses, they have to actually be in a role or currently heading for that role but we won't take a newcomer in the industry who's been working for a year and give them team lead training nor will we take someone who's had five years as a as a cpo or ep agent and give them director training right they've got to go through it so we're not in it for the of course i want people to take it but we are maintaining a particular standard i'll also say if there's anyone out there who has um, financial, we'll say, who doesn't have the liquid finances because they didn't finance it, but they do meet the requirements and they can present a case as to why they should get a scholarship with us. I'm very happy to discuss it and very happy to offer scholarships to the excellent future leaders of the industry. Um, this is not for the chance takers. This is for people who excel and who really are going to be the next leaders at whichever level. I'm happy to have that discussion with them. Um, so, so please reach out to me. That's amazing. And we'll make sure that we put the, the links to the Academy inside the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Elijah. Um, this will be perfect. So, and the other thing, the other thing I want to mention, Bell, I mean, the near future is, is, uh, Omicron dependent, I'm looking forward to coming to the seventh 
CP Technology Forum in London on the 27th of January. I believe I've been at every forum, perhaps except one, but I think I've been to everyone um, since you first started uh, back seven years ago, right? Um, or, or even a bit longer because of COVID, so probably nine years ago. So I, I'm looking very forward to that, to seeing old friends and, and to making new friends and uh, just being back back in the industry. Fantastic. Well, no, thanks for your continued support. And yes, you were there right from day one. Uh, so this will be uh, excellent uh, evolution. Thank you uh, for you know continuing to support everything. Um, we, we, we're very much looking forward to it. Grand Connaught Rooms, 27th of January. Um, but yes, we must draw things to a close. From Elijah and myself, uh, this has been another fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. We've really enjoyed having you on. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in person very, very soon. Thank you, Pelham. And thank you, Elijah. It's always a pleasure to speak with professionals such as yourselves. Thank you for the opportunity. Powerful testimony from Ivor Terrett. Loved it. Ivor has been supporting us for so many years, and it's great to get him on. And I really feel that we've made a little bit of progress on the learning and development debate, but also that dichotomy between not covert surveillance, not covert protection, but covert operations as a banner. Um, what, what, what have you taken away, uh, Sean? It was great to hear from both Elijah and Ivor. They're both a font of knowledge in the industry. And I've attended many of Ivor's talks, actually, um, where he spoke about covert protection in length. And I'm looking forward to his next talk that he's doing, I know, in London at the CP Technology Forum. But it was, it was great just hearing how we, the distinguishing feature between what can be delivered online and what can't. You know, the likes of management training that could be delivered successfully online where maybe the covert protection may be not so successful. But as we discussed in the intro before we actually listened to the podcast, you know, maybe elements of that can be taught as some pre-course, pre-course training before you attend them physical elements of the course. And that, and that's perhaps a key point. Um, and Elijah was in fact on a panel uh, in at the IPSB in December in Vegas. And I watched it live on Instagram live actually. And it was quite a hot topic because there are people out there that said not even those pre-course materials should be delivered online. Um, but I'd like to imagine that pre-course materials it should, should be viewed like pre-reading um, before, before you get on a course. Um, and the world of covert operations, what an interesting topic through Ivor's eyes. I, I understand that perhaps Ivor can choose his clientele uh, more more carefully than a new operator, but I but I like the sentiment that you know, if you are on a job and you have to be so covert that you'll get fired to be you know even being seen by the principal, m m maybe that's too far. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was you know, interesting hearing something like that. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean I could see guys there and girls working on a task like that, and almost on ten hooks, you know, running from pillar to post to try and stay in the shadows and out of sight and you know, a bit too much pressure and stress to be able to do the job in the correct manner. 
but yeah, no, it was certainly interesting to hear that. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference between secret operations and covert operations. Yes. You say secret could even be much more of a pain for you because suddenly local authorities would start to, you know, uh, cause trouble for you. Whereas covert, it, it, it's much more established, much more expected by uh, people that expect that uh, type of thing. But what else have we got coming up? Because I feel it's a new year. This is the second season of the Circuit Magazine podcast. Um, we still got great uh, traction on the NABA Protector app and the BBA Connect app. Thank you very much to you all for staying with us over the new year period. Um, what else do we want people to, to sort of think about in this you know, second or third week of January? We've already had Mick Coop yesterday, uh, not yesterday, but last, last week, uh, pumping everyone up for fitness. Um, what, what else do we want people to do? No, I, I like a new year and all of the new year's resolutions that come with it. Um, we have got the different podcast episodes and I love the new branding. It's fantastic work from John for season two of the podcast. I love that. And certainly, as we've mentioned earlier in the podcast, the CP Technology Forum in London on Thursday, the 27th of January, it's always a great event. It's one of my favourites on the calendar. So I'm looking forward to attending that, hosted by yourself. Uh, some interesting speakers. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm uh, stoked. You know, back at the Grand Connaught Rooms, um, it's going to be an, a, you know, a, a plush location, a nice experience for everyone involved. Um, we, we, we're following all government guidance as, uh, as is necessary. And um, we're going to look at loads of different topics. We have Jackie Davis giving a keynote speech. So thank you uh, very much. Um, and of course, Mike O'Neill is uh, kindly moderating uh, the majority of the event again, like always, all you know, in this seventh iteration. Uh, so uh, please do stop by. Uh, we have an after uh, reception as well. Uh, but uh, but it's, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to meeting, you know, a lot of our members who I haven't met in person as yet. So it's, an, it's another opportunity um, to get there, put a face to the name and, you know, maybe share a few drinks after the event and a bit of networking. Looking forward to it. And BBA members, please keep an eye out for communications from us specific to that event. I'm very sure that you will want to see the wonderful messages we're going to be sending you about it. Um, but to our wider community, thank you very much. Uh, learning and development, I know we're going to get some interesting comments uh, for, against, uh, indifferent. <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite a hot topic. And, of course, covert protection uh is it the way forward is it the modus operandi for today's principle lots and lots of feedback i expect from sean and myself thank you very much to today's guest Ivor terrett this has been another fantastic edition of the circuit magazine podcast you have been listening to the circuit magazine podcast be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode